A very good morning and welcome to the show. Coming up at 11 o'clock, hear about the lives of women and children living in a safe house in the back streets of Addis Ababa. Some extraordinary stories of perseverance and resilience. But first, my guest is Javier Aguelo, co-founder of and executive director of Cogix, a company that works towards enhancing the function of the brain. They offer customised programmes to improve students' or patients' cognitive skills. Have you been called stupid? Has your child been labelled difficult at school? His brain's not working right, you might hear someone say about another person who might not be understanding things. Similarly, after an accident or when a person's brain is damaged, they may find it difficult to concentrate or feel that they can't fully recover. Earlier this year, I met with Javier Arguello of Cogix and talked to him on this topic, and I asked him what he's doing here in the UAE. So this is our first trip uh, to the UAE with Cogex to try to identify a partner to work with in order to help people enhance their cognitive abilities or remediate those after injury or some sort of illness that sometimes affects our ability to function properly. Tell us a bit about COGEX. Sure. So COGEX is a methodology used in a clinical setting to provide people um, enhanced awareness about how they th- learn and an ability to improve their cognitive skills through one-on-one interventions with certified professionals that have been trained in our methodology. And what we do is we teach proven techniques that are evidence-based to improve cognitive abilities. We train these uh, abilities so that they can improve from their baseline. And then we coach people to apply these techniques into a real-life setting so that they don't need to work with us in the future so the gains are sustainable. To put this in context, what we do is, for example, you could easily benefit, anyone could benefit for improve it for, uh, by improving their long-term memory or their ability to store and retrieve information more efficiently. To do that, there's several sequences that have to happen in your brain effectively. The first is you have to actively be able to pay attention to the information that's being delivered, whether it's auditory or visual or a mix of both. So that's tasking your attention. The second thing that you need to be able to do is process the information at the right speed so that you can connect the dots between the information that's coming to your brain and that which you seek to store. Then you have to actively identify the information that's relevant for storage, and that's usually a small component of the information that we receive. And at that point, we start to engage our working memory so that it effectively... Uh, manipulates the information and packages it for our brain to store. And that packaging process is based on techniques that you can improve, which we teach and improve upon. And then you store the information, which is uh, usually in the hippocampus, and that's where information is stored into the long term. And then eventually we retrieve this information uh, at a later date for, for future use, obviously. So Our expertise lies in the ability to influence and improve each of these cognitive abilities so that you can be more effective, whether it is at learning or in the workplace or socially. All of us depend on our cognitive skills, and um, improving these is very important for quality of life and longevity. What you've just described is, isn't that what we do naturally anyway? And you mentioned there, depending on your cognitive skills, so... Where are the weaknesses? Who's Who does this benefit if it's something that we kind of do anyway? So to improve our intelligence, to improve our way of thinking, to improve our ability to learn. Yeah, that's a great question. And so we all have uh, a unique way by which we process information and every brain is wired differently. And some people are naturally better at 
processing auditory information. Some people are naturally more attentive than others. Some people are more creative, better at problem solving. And the reason why we perform differently in academic settings and we choose different careers for our life is because our cognitive skills are different. So our brains naturally choose the path of least resistance and they naturally uh, and subconsciously adapt to the information so that we can circumvent around our weaknesses or create some sort of mechanism by which we process information. So we're doing this subconsciously and we're doing this suboptimally. And we tend to gravitate to the things that we're good at. And that's how we choose careers. And sometimes we can't choose this. Sometimes uh, attention is necessary for any course, for any career. Sometimes working memory is necessary for problem solving. And if these were not naturally um, high when we were born and we didn't improve them throughout our lives, then they can lead to some optimal, suboptimal outcomes for us academically, socially, professionally. So yes, you can find a career and yes, you can probably be fine. And the question is, could we be better? And uh, what do we do that affects our brains negatively? Can we do things to improve upon that? And it's, it's a matter of either letting our brains choose a suboptimal path or becoming more aware of how we could be using our brains more optimally. And that's uh, ultimately what it's about, I guess. And your motivation, it comes from quite a personal place, doesn't it? From personal experience. Tell us a little bit about yourself growing up and, and what happened to you. Sure. So um, it's, it's interesting to study the brain because emotion affects cognition and emotion also affects behavior. So our habits are shaped by our feelings and our feelings and our habits can affect our brain's performance. In my situation, I am originally from Nicaragua. When I was five years old, we fled a war. There was a, a bazooka pointed at our door to literally blow us up that day. So it was quite a dramatic experience. And uh, trauma also affects the brain now. It's quite common to, to know that there's something called post-traumatic stress disorder. And that has crippling effects on short-term memory, on attention, on abilities to stay focused and to learn. And just as an example, people coming back from conflict and trying to re-enter an academic setting in the United States, there's a dropout rate of greater than 95%. And these are not people that are necessarily unable or were previously unable to learn. It's just the psychological effect that, that we endure through a traumatic experience affects us. In my situation, I was, I was young, I was changing cultures, and uh, it had an enormous impact in, in our family life as well as just relocating. I went through several schools, I went through several countries, and eventually, when I was 13, I was uh, asked to be evaluated in, in a foreign language, in a foreign system. And the outcome of that evaluation was that I was told that I was mildly retarded. And that was something that affected me enormously, something that I didn't speak of for at least uh, a decade. And I gave up on learning, and I didn't think I was going to be able to get an education. And I kept it a secret, a very dark secret. I didn't ask questions in class, and I dropped out of school the moment I had an opportunity to do that. So for me, um, not feeling like I could do something about a weakness that was either real or perceived was a big problem. And I think we've made great progress in terms of understanding where our weaknesses are, and we have yet to make equal progress in doing something about that. 
And that's exactly where I think COGX uh, fits in. What we know is scientifically possible in terms of being able to improve your mental abilities is far more than what we actually do to improve them. So I think it's a fascinating time for anyone studying brain science and, and getting engaged in this field of doing something proactively to engage and improve our brain's performance with proper training. And I'm not talking about gimmicky uh, brain training that that there's a ton of that and so it's important to differentiate between proper clinical evidence-based custom customized programs that are delivered one-on-one -on -one versus the uh, norm which could be games we play online and and are told that we're going to get smarter and in reality we're just getting better at a game. I return now to my conversation with Javier Arguello, co-founder and executive director of COGX, as we discuss brain performance, thinking about thinking. So as well as identifying weaknesses, it's also about identifying what to do about it. So an important point to, to make, and I guess understanding what's possible and what's not possible and what's gimmicky and what's science-based when we talk about improving our brain's performance I think that companies can be slick in terms of coming up with programs that capitalize on any scientific trend and by default end up uh, deceiving customers and then discrediting what was scientifically proven to be possible. So people lose faith in science or lose faith in their ability to do something. And I think we're at a point where um, in some markets in the world we're seeing enormous interest in, on behalf of the public in doing something about their brain's performance. So our bodies are living longer. We're seeing life expectancy increase by as much as a generation over the last generation. So what that means is if on average we used to die at 65, now we're living to 85. And that's happened over a relatively short period of time. So our bodies are sticking around longer, but our brains are not necessarily living a healthy 85-year period. And by, for that reason alone, a lot of people are interested. A second reason is if you think about our educational system and where it came from and how it was democratized, and this goes back to England, actually, so your original country, uh, we had to take people out of farms and into classrooms, and we had to democratize the way in which uh, literacy was taught. So if you were working in a farm, you didn't really have to be literate to, to be productive. As the Industrial Revolution rolled around, we all had to learn to read to operate equipment and be more productive, and productivity soared. But that happened over 200 years ago. So now we're in a very specialized knowledge-based economy that has people running into jobs that are very sophisticated, problem-solving at a very high level, and tasking expertise that should be deep. And college degrees now don't mean much. So before you had to learn to read. Now you need a college degree or a master's. And more importantly, you need to have the ability to learn information on your own really quickly. What studies are finding is that people stay on their job less than three years. So if you, and that's shrinking quite fast. So in the 50s, people would have employment for life with, with a big company and they would hold your hand and take you all the way to the top. Now nobody holds your hand and the market kind of churns jobs quite quickly. So it's a very aggressive environment in which we have to compete. And we're competing with our minds and we are competing based on our ability to pick up skills really quickly. So what I'm getting to here is that our ability to master new skills and to teach ourselves is critical to survival in today's economy. And that means that we become our own instructors, which means we really need to have strong cognitive skills. So all of this to say that um, the way in which we learn in schools has not changed much since the Industrial Revolution, which poses a real big challenge for individuals that know they need to learn differently 
or need to learn constantly beyond the classroom and on their own. Secondly, we're living longer lives, which means we have to have our brains at par with our bodies, so we leave, uh, lead meaningful lives. And uh, thirdly, we have to be equipped in the marketplace with an ever-changing set of skills that require us to be good and specialized and fast. So it's, it's appealing, I guess, if we hear you can do better and you can improve your brain's performance. And it's really disappointing when it's gimmicky and false. And there are some ways in which you can audit whether or not the methodology that is being presented to you is actually effective or not. Unfortunately, I think most methodologies are ineffective because most programs are sold through a computer, which poses many limitations. And um, the first of which is you're playing a game, and that is not quite teaching you techniques, and it is not improving your ability to audit how you learn and to identify where your gaps are and to become more cognizant of, of how you improve these in a way that transfers into real life. So what all the studies have shown is that any online program that sells itself on the ability to improve brain performance, what's called brain training, while it may be mushrooming and growing enormously as an industry, it's gone from $100 million five years ago to $6 billion in three years. So it's growing quite fast, but the results are not quite there. And they're not quite there because what you're doing is you're getting better at playing a game and you're not necessarily getting better at anything else in life. So it might be cool and it might stroke your ego for a few uh, hours if you think, okay, well, now I'm playing the game, I'm getting better, and it's this game where I have to remember some image. The point shouldn't be that you're beating your neighbor. The point should be that when you stop playing the game, you can remember things better. And it doesn't happen like that. For most people, it doesn't. You, you really need uh, the program to engage you at a level that is more customized, that teaches the technique that the game is trying to teach behind the scenes, but it should be more obvious. So what you actually master is, is a technique, not a game. And as your skill improves, then you can tie the two, the improved skill with the new technique, and know exactly when to apply it. And that's really important. So there should be three components for a methodology to, to work. It should be teaching you something that you metacognitively, which means you're, you're aware of, of your thought, you're aware of your learning process, you internalize this and you know how to apply it. At the same time, they're lifting your cognitive skill with exercises that are somewhat customized to your ability, to your age, to your needs, and speaking directly to the interdependencies between your cognitive skills. So we can't train cognitive skills in a vacuum, and that's really important. And the final point is to know exactly what to do with this. So, okay, I'm better, now what? Well, when do I apply what? And that type of coaching is, is essential. So if a program is standardized, which online is by default standardized, you are by default not able to do that. You're not going to be customized, you're not going to be teaching, and you're not going to be coaching for generalization. So any online program that claims it can do that for anyone is unlikely to be true. And if it is true, it's probably for a very, very small segment of the population. So I would say stay away from online uh, unless you're playing games and having fun and not taking it too seriously. And the other thing is, if, if it's in person, it should probably have those components that I described in terms of make sure it's customized, personalized, one-on-one, -on -one, obviously, in person, and that it's teaching you techniques and it's making you aware of, of the process, which is really important. And it has to do so in a way that's age-appropriate, obviously, because you can work with a six-year-old and that's not the same as working with a 36-year-old. 
I remember when I was at school, my uh, French teacher saying to the class, uh, the difference between pupils in one grade compared to pupils in in a higher grade is that maybe they have learned better how to learn and that stuck with me to this day and I apply that often when you see something that you need to a task that you need to do or a piece of information that you need to dissect get behind the information and break it down and figure out what's being asked of me what's required to reach the right solution or find the answer so it's interesting uh, what you're saying and of course it's not just for children and for for students um, but it's for everybody through every age that we still should be pumping that muscle that is the brain and keep thinking and learning and keep improving on that learning process. Yes exactly and and that separation um, which is is awful if you're on the other side of of the uh, classroom it's very painful. It's basically saying um, here I am as a teacher teaching the whole class the same way and here's a group that gets it and here's another group that doesn't. The real question is why and teachers by default need to teach to the mean which means where is the average in my class so that when I speak the majority of students get it. It'll never be that a standardized process works for a diverse group of people. By default we're not able to do that. And the irony is that we know that our class is diverse. Every single brain in there is different. But we only have one way to teach them because we have a teacher addressing a class. So you always have the students that get it and those that don't quite get it and don't know why they don't get it. If you taught differently, those that don't get it might get it. But more importantly, if you identified exactly what's preventing those that don't get it from getting it, then they could do something about it and be more able to learn in any environment. And you studied communications probably, which is really about understanding language and reading between the lines. And that requires so many cognitive skills to do that um, we all study communication to a certain point. A teacher is communicating and a student is receiving that communication. So it's essential for life, basically, how our brains uh, receive information and make sense of it. And we can't have a conversation if I don't really understand what you're asking me. And if I don't process that, then it's going to be a frustrating process. In conversation with Javier Arguello, co-founder and executive director of COGEX. He graduated from Ivy League U.S. universities Yale and Harvard, even though at the age of 13 he was diagnosed as mildly retarded and later a college dropout. I asked Javier, what was the turning point for you when you began to overcome the label that had been pinned on you? I had explained that I had been labeled as mildly retarded when I was 13 years old. At this point, I, I, um, I had skipped part of eighth grade and I was in a new country and in a new system and uh, in the wrong grade. I was not only the youngest one in that grade, but also struggling. And when I was labeled as mildly retarded, I immediately um, rebelled against learning. Uh, I didn't want to struggle and fail because that reinforced the fact that I was dumb. So it didn't feel good to try and fail. So my defense mechanism was to not try and I would continue to fail, but at least I would have fun. And that's a very dangerous path. I don't recommend any teenager to do that. And um, luckily I didn't get into terrible uh, trouble, but I was basically absent from high school. I broke detention records everywhere I went, which means I was the least uh, present student in the entire school. 
I never went to class. I didn't see a point in going to class if, if I already knew that I couldn't learn. So I didn't really see a prospect in college. And there's an interest, interest uh, I guess, an exam that you take to see what colleges will ex accept you in the U.S. And, and it's a very important uh, test to take. I, I basically lied to my family and I told them that I had taken this test and, and I hadn't. Um, so I really didn't have any options in terms of college. My mother enrolled me in a community college that doesn't really require that you take that test. And I had no choice but to, uh, I guess, prove her that I was not smart enough to learn. And I did that very fast. I, um, I was in probation the first semester in a school that doesn't require anything to get accepted. So I basically said to my mother, I am now officially the bottom of the bottom. Uh, you don't need anything to get in here, and I'm the worst. So have I convinced you that I am not good enough to learn? Uh, can I drop out now? And she said no. Um, so I dropped out, and she thought I was still in college. And at that point, I um, obviously fell into a depression, thinking what will be of myself and what will my future look like. I was delivering pizza, I was bagging groceries, and I was reading a lot. And I was very concerned about my future. So... There wasn't um, a gift that arrived overnight. <laughs> there was just fear that sank in every night. And I slowly um, realized that without an education, I, my future looked very bleak. So I worked really hard and went back to school. And I um, slowly, I guess, overcame my fears and found courses where it spoke to my strengths and... I started to gradually, but very, very slowly, um, think that I could learn. I finished college still not sure, and at work I started to do well and started to become less insecure, and I had felt cheated by the label of mildly retarded, so I um, mustered the courage to take that uh, exam, and I, I was fortunate to do well. And, and then I was accepted at, at two good schools to, to pursue my master's degrees in, and was received with scholarships. So that's quite a journey, isn't it, from being labelled mildly retarded as a young boy to getting there into your um, early adult years, getting graduate degrees from Yale and Harvard. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's hard to say it in less than 10 words, but I think more important than than, than those uh, schools is, is the journey that, that you described because uh, I used to believe that if, if someone in the room had gone to a school that had some sort of prestige that I needed to leave the room immediately because <laughs> I was not smart enough to speak to that person. And you have no, no idea how many parties I ran away from because there were smart people in the room. And um, it, it just takes, I guess, a little bit of, of hard work and, and luck to realize that I can, um, I can speak to anyone and, and be misunderstood and be understood, but um, ultimately we all have abilities that we sometimes uh, don't nourish and we sometimes have inabilities that we nourish, and I've done both, and I, I know exactly what it feels like to be in the spectrum of things. Tell us a bit about your field of research in neuroscience. I know that's a huge area, but in relation to this topic and, and the work that you do with COGX, so just to give us an, an overview. Sure. So we uh, recently 
tried to distill years of research into a magazine that was initially no more than 25 pages, but we had to double that so that we could try to translate what would take someone years to do into uh, something that was meaningful, uh, insightful, and relevant with the latest um, scientific insights that we could find. So the research that, that we do at COGEX uh, as it pertains to this publication, and which is basically a summary of what we've done for years, is to try to understand what can we do to improve our brain's function and how are our different cognitive skills interrelated and therefore interdependent, and when do some of these cognitive skills sabotage our ability to learn across the board, and when is it less relevant? And I think that's really uh, the most that can be done with what we know today about our brains. And that allows us to at least know what scientific evidence is available to support or not support different methodologies. So if you start with the foundation of what's scientifically possible and then work backwards to validating what you do or how you can do things better, I think you have a more honest process and a better outcome at the end. When you try to take a shortcut, um, you end up perhaps with a slicker product and eventually it will discredit itself. And what I think will happen over the next few years is a consolidation of different players that are effective and a disappearing effect of those that are not effective. And that happens in any industry that's growing fast, and this is one that's experiencing explosive growth now. So I hope that by being cautious and by doing a lot of research, COGX can stay uh, relevant and uh, up to speed with scientific discoveries and effective. And we hope to have a meaningful presence with COGX in the Middle East. Um, we're here actually to, to identify partners precisely for that. And it's a process that, that we take seriously because we're not selling, we're partnering with local providers. And those local providers may be working with education, um, but also working with companies, I guess, working, you know, and helping employees. So, you know, who are you targeting? Who do you want to work alongside? Uh, we have five segments that we work with, but we've narrowed down those that we are uh, focused on to three for the region. And those are hospitals that work with um, victims of or survivors of brain injury or illness that affects their cognitive abilities, cancer causes, for example, chemo brain, which affects your short-term memory and your processing speed, and other illnesses affect our mental abilities. So working with a couple of reputable hospitals that can better serve their population is important. This region actually has one of the highest uh, rates of car accidents in the world. And rarely do we have a car accident without it affecting our head and therefore our brain and therefore our cognitive skills. So that's one important area. Second one that we are seeking to work with is schools that are more interested in serving their students in a customized way that allows their students to successfully learn the material that's taught in the classroom so they can be more effective and independent learners. So we're looking for a few schools to partner with here. And the final one, and perhaps the more important one is a, um, an organization that can successfully bring people that wouldn't be served by schools or hospitals. So if you're a student in a school that's not using our methodology 
or you have no need for a hospital, you could go to a learning center that has uh, something like um, counseling and physical therapy and and speech and cognitive training through the COGX methodology. So that would be the ideal mix for us, and, and we're very excited about the prospects that we've seen this week here. Just, just tell us about the TEDx event in Washington, D.C., where you presented, uh, and yeah, learning with skills, not pills. Back in 2012, I started working with, actually, the story does start on a funnier note. The uh, client that I consider to be the most intimidating client I've ever had, we did not impress her at first with our process because we didn't tell her what the next step in the process was. We were overwhelmed with demand and we dropped the ball with her. And um, she basically turned around, left and said, "Um, I'm done with you. And I had her address and I thought her son who has autism was a good fit for our methodology. So I took the liberty of summarizing a book and dropping the book off along with my notes and the results of the evaluation in her mailbox at almost midnight. We were extremely busy that month. It was March of uh, 2012, uh, evaluating students and and getting back to parents. But something told me I had to, to do this to make up lost ground. So um, that, I guess, uh, helped her come back. When she came back, we started to work with her son. She was very inspired with what was happening and the results that we were getting and fascinated by the area of uh, neuroscience and what was happening with the research and said, I have actually done a TEDx event that was very successful in Seattle, Washington. I would now like to do one around your topic here in Washington, D.C., And uh, would you want to do that one with me? And I said, sure. There are all these books and research, and I'd love to invite all these authors and have them give a talk. So I became a part of the uh, panel of judges. And at one point she said, well, what's your story? And when I shared the whole story, uh, my background and the research, then the judges uh, said, well, you have to give a talk. And I said, well, no, I I can't give a talk and, and disclose all these things about me being mildly retarded. I don't speak of that, and I'll lose credibility. I can't sell that to parents. So eventually I said, no, no, that's actually the reason why I do this, and I can't hide it the rest of my life. That's really the drive. So they convinced me to to come out with my uh, secret and share it, and it actually was a wonderful experience. It, It was cathartic in the sense that I finally came to terms with why I chose the path that I've chosen, and there's nothing to be ashamed of in in not having been a successful learner and breaking records for a skipping class. So now I I can laugh, and and now I'm on your show telling people (laughs) that I was labeled mildly retarded. So that's how how that event unfolded. It's a really good story to share, because I think many people will think of where they've been deemed a failure or believe that there's an obstacle and I can't overcome that because I don't have that belief in myself because I've not been supported to be able to gain that confidence. So it just shows that all of us have something that we failed at and, and actually through fa- failing, we can learn. And you're, you're, you know, you've shown us that's a great example of how you overcame it and went on to uh, earn degrees and, and be doing the job and playing the role that you do today. When it comes to learning... And when you're saying you're improving cognitive skills, but you did say at the beginning of the hour that there are different t- 
types of people and with different cognitive skills. What I'm getting to is, can anybody learn anything with the right guidance and the right tools? I, I, I don't like blanket statements, but I don't like to be vague either. So I think if we're going to give a blanket response to a blanket question, I would say the answer, the short answer is um, maybe. <laughs> no, the, the actual short answer would be everyone can improve something. The degree to which you can improve varies based on how low the starting point is and what else is inhibiting uh, performance and what you're using to improve it and ultimately what your definition of improving is. We have kids that we've uh, worked with for 50 hours and they've had great, great results and we're happy to see them end. And we've had kids with more serious developmental disorders that we've worked with for over two years. And if we look at where they are, uh, without looking at where they started, it wouldn't look like a success. If you ask their parents, the doctors, where they are versus where they started, they're jumping up and down about success. So it's all relative, right? But going back to, to the previous point, uh, none of us like to repeat failures, and all, all of us experience failures. And, and there's something that I think is, is uh, perhaps I'm not able to articulate it as, as well as I'd like to, but um, Einstein defined insanity as repeating something and expecting a different outcome. And none of us would like to be insane. But success, successful people always say that failure is a stepping stone to success. So are successful people insane? Probably not. Uh, the point is that we have to act a little bit insane in persisting through our failures and patiently waiting for our successes. And we shouldn't really expect for anything to be fixed quickly if it's to be a meaningful result that we're seeking. So I think that's a really good answer because I think, you know, the reason for sort of saying that is that people think... I can buy knowledge, I can just do that course and that will make me good at that. And it's about part of the learning process and developing as a human being is realizing what you're best suited to That's right. and understanding where actually uh, achievement and success can come from surprising angles and not always in that linear line as you've discovered and so but that's part of your intelligence is to figure that out and to recognize okay that wasn't quite what I was expecting but look what's happened along the way and it might take you down another path that is equally as rewarding or more rewarding uh, whether that's in your studies in your uh, choices that you make in your career. Uh, so I think the whole area of the brain and learning and how we identify with ourselves is a fascinating one. Sorry, no, I was just going to add that if, if we don't seek discomfort, by definition, we are shrinking over time. So there, there's no way to grow without stretching ourselves. And I think seeking discomfort is, is something that really helps. We can't stay comfortable and expect to grow and and we can't really have meaningful results without meaningful effort behind that. So the topic of the TEDx uh, event, that at least for my talk, was um, it wasn't necessarily about my personal story, which I mentioned that I did talk about in that event, but there was a theme, and, and it was about inattentiveness and how common it is to label people as ADHD. And I think that most of those labels are inaccurate. We over-prescribe, we over-diagnose, 
And that's, to me, a troubling trend because two things happen. Um, we are labeling someone as inattentive when in reality that's not the case. And what I mean by that is attention is the entry point of information. And when attention is imperfect, everything else tends to fail. But attention is also something that we do to protect ourselves. So going back to failure and, and feeling inadequate and persisting, when our brain is tasked beyond its capacity or beyond its ability, specifically, say, an area that's, that's weak um, and, and we're not succeeding at whatever it is that we're trying to do, our brain is releasing a lot of glucose, which is the equivalent of mental energy. And when that, if that process is not uh, happening as it should, when, the, when, when we're not learning effectively, we actually stop producing the glucose, which means we stop paying attention because we're emotionally scarring ourselves by continuing and failing. So as a defense mechanism, we actually stop. We stop paying attention. And when we diagnose someone as ADHD, we may be failing to realize that they have decided to stop paying attention because it's something else that they're not able to do. So you're blaming attention when somebody else is guilty. And if you put medicine on top of the wrong culprit, you're not only failing to solve the problem, you're creating another one because you're changing the chemical balances in the brain. You're flooding them with dopamine, which leads to side effects and sometimes abuse, which is very common in the United States. And if that's a trend that starts to pick up globally, which I know pharmaceuticals would love, it's very, very dangerous for what we're doing to ourselves. And that's a topic that I'm quite passionate about because to improve our mental ability, we need to understand what's preventing us from doing what it is that we're trying to do. And if we try to solve by popping a pill and, um, and that doesn't address the root of the problem, I think it defeats the whole spirit of my career. Well, it's been fascinating talking with you today. So for now, uh, Javier Arguello, thank you very much for your time today. Co-founder and executive director of COGEX. Thank you. Thank you very much. Stay with me. Coming up after the news at 11 o'clock, hear how I got on when I visited a safe house in the back streets of Addis Ababa. Hear the stories of the women and the children that have been through enormous trauma, how they recover, how they rehabilitate and who looks after them. Stay with me.